cliffcentral.com. I'm delighted to have the unbelievable best-selling author of so many books, but this one, Stolen Focus, a book which I, I cannot recommend enough to everybody who feels and who doesn't these days, as if everything is just too much. We're being bombarded with information. We have screens in front of us all the time. He has decided to singularly focus on this thing, and he is the best person to do it because he explains in no uncertain terms exactly what's going on and even gives us some ideas of how we can start to reclaim our personality, reclaim our attention, reclaim our meanings, our connections, uh, the ability to think deeply about things. And his name is Johan Hari. It's a great pleasure to have you here, Johan. Oh, I'm so happy to be back in South Africa. Until Thank I turned you. 40, I thought jet lag and people who complained about air travel was like a myth. I was like, what the fuck are they talking about? Now I'm 43. <laughs> I just landed. I'm like a corpse. So I apologize <laughs> to all your listeners for the moment when I die in about 20 minutes, but I'll do my best. Right. <laughs> no, you're doing absolutely fine. Just before we even talk about your book, which, by the way, is really, really extraordinary. Oh, thank you. Um, no, no, it is. And I know people say that because they have to in an interview. But <laughs> I, I finished only just before you arrived for the interview. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a magnum opus when it comes to this kind of thing. Oh, I'm really, really chuffed by that. Thank you. Cheers. Well, you were telling me before we start talking about the book about the, uh, the time the Dalai Lama uh, insulted you. It's a tragic story that I was fat shamed by the Dalai Lama. It's very unfortunate. Now, to be fair to the Dalai Lama, I was much fatter then than I am now. But nonetheless, uh, so I was like a baby journalist. I was, I think I was 23. Yeah. And I can't imagine why, but I got sent to interview the Dalai Lama, which is a ridiculous situation to be in. And, you know, I believe when you interview a, a powerful person, even if you agree with them on most things, you've got to challenge them on a few things. Otherwise, sure. it's just interesting PR. And so Fluff I was like, yeah, interview. Yeah. exactly. That's not my style. So I was curious about, you know, has the Dalai Lama, although of course I think the Chinese occupation of Tibet is monstrous. I was mm. curious, is the Dalai Lama, does he have any dodgy views? Turns out he's got some really terrible views along with some really admirable ones. So he's very anti-gay. You shouldn't use the other holes as an actual quote uh. for the Dalai Lama. <laughs> um, he thinks disabled people are being punished for what they did in a previous life. Not you great. Know, not great. So the first 20 minutes, we're getting on great, you know, uh, <laughs> getting along nicely, talking about yeah, China. Tibet, yeah. And then I thought, and then I thought, well, I'll, I'll transition now. And it was bizarre because he started, I start asking about the gay stuff and the disabled stuff. And he started pretending he didn't speak English. He's like, I, uh, I don't understand this, this question. And I'm like, I know you speak English. I, I like, I just saw you give a speech in English. We were doing, um, and so he wouldn't really engage with it, but then his sort of people, uh, were, I was meant to have an hour with him and his people were giving me really dirty looks. And I thought, you know, this is a journalist. God, they're going to throw me out. So I better switch back to something we agree on. So I said, you know, your holiness, you've always been very critical of income inequality in the West. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I don't see why people need so much money. We each only have one stomach. And then paused and said, except you, you clearly have at least three. Like I was a fucking cow. And I was like, <laughs> am I being fat shamed by a living God? Yeah. Right. Who is meant to love blades of brass and rocks. Like what the fuck is happening? <laughs> and he hates you. And it was horrible. So, and I wasn't my most dignified journalist at the moment. I said, well, you're quite fat as well. <laughs> so I wasn't like the great. Anyway, I wrote about this and about it, it, it got like it was kind of early days of the internet, but it went sort of viral in the way things could before social media. And I got, uh, I got the world's first ever Buddhist death threat, which I was very proud of. And I, I wrote back and I was like, just so you know, you're going to have five lives as a woodlouse now because you sent this death threat, you fucker. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, I still admire him. And actually, in a funny uh, way, I admire great people more when they have flaws. Uh, but it was, you know, it's not nice to be fat shamed by, uh, no, by, by a living God. Exactly. Very That's unfortunate quite experience. It would be like if one day Oprah rang me up and said, you know what? You're a prick. Yeah. Yeah, like, it would what? Be it would be fairly not that Oprah would ever do that, but no, she's better than the Dalai exactly. Lama, much better. So this she book, should be given her own like province to run. Exactly, who wouldn't I go think and she does? That? It's called Hollywood. Oh, God bless her. <laughs> so this book, I mean, it's really uh, you know just the the cover, and I know publishers want you to write these catchy things; it'll grab attention from the bookshelves. And but this is probably one of our biggest issues today, and it's something that every single person I know concerns themselves with they beat themselves up about it they're they're aware of the problem at least in some way shape or form and they feel so powerless to resist it so you start the book by talking about your godson and his obsession with elvis 
and how you <laughs> you promised him in kind of a a moment of obvious generosity that you were, you'll take him to Memphis and to to Graceland one day. But you made him promise that he'd put away his phone. Because- but I had this, yeah, I'd had this moment. It's funny, exactly what you're saying, that feeling of like, something's wrong with our attention, but I don't know what it is. I'd had that feeling for years. And to be honest, I don't think I wanted to write about it because I thought the story I had in my head is, well, there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. What's wrong with me? Why can't I just resist this shit? Um, and that that feeling really put me put me off this subject. And... And then it just felt like with each year that passed, things that require deep focus that are so important to me, like reading books, having proper long conversations, watching films, were getting more and more like running up a down escalator. You know what I mean? I could still do them, but they were getting harder and harder. And I was looking at the scientific evidence and I was trained in the social sciences at Cambridge University and like seeing the evidence that this is happening to lots of people, right? The average office worker now focuses on any one task for only three minutes. You know, for every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. But I kept thinking, I don't want to look at this. And then I had this moment, like you mentioned, so I got a godson uh, and it was incredibly cute because when he was nine, he developed this brief but incredibly intense obsession with Elvis Presley. And what was amazing about it is he seemed to genuinely not know that impersonating Elvis had become like a kind of terrible cliche. I think he was the last person to do a totally sincere impression of Elvis. And at night when I would tuck him in, he would get me to tell him the story of Elvis's life over and over again. Obviously I skipped over the bit where he shits himself to death on the toilet at the end. And, and one night I mentioned Graceland where Elvis lived and he looked at me and he said, will you take me to Graceland one day? And the way you do with nine year olds, I was like, yeah, sure. No, next week it'll be fucking Legoland or whatever. And he said, no, no, I really mean it. Do you swear one day will you take me to Graceland? And I said, I absolutely swear. And I didn't think of that moment again for 10 years until so many things had gone wrong. So he, he dropped out of school when he was 15. And by the time he was 19, this will, this will sound like an exaggeration. It's not. He spent literally all his waking hours virtually alternating between his iPad, his iPhone, his laptop. And his life was just this blur of WhatsApp, YouTube, porn. And and it really felt like he was kind of like whirring at the speed of Snapchat when nothing still or serious could touch him. And one day we were sitting on my sofa in London and all day I've been trying to get a conversation going with him and I just couldn't. And to be honest with you, I wasn't that much better, right? Yeah. Um, I was staring at my own devices and I suddenly remembered this moment all these years before. And I was like, hey, let's go to Graceland. And he looked at me totally blankly. He was like, well, I didn't even remember this. And I reminded him. And I said, look, let's go all over the South. We've got to break this numbing routine. But there's one condition, which is if we go, you've got to leave your phone in the hotel during the day. Because there's no point us going if you're just going to stare at Snapchat the whole time. And he really thought about it. And I could see that he wasn't happy with this way of being. Mm. Um, and, he, and he really thought about it. And he said, look, I'll do it. I promise I'm going to do it. And I think it was literally two or maybe three weeks later, we took off from London. We went to New Orleans first. We went all over the South. A couple of weeks later, we arrived at the gates of Graceland. And this was before COVID. Even then, there's no person to show you around. What happens is you're given an iPad and you put in earbuds and the iPad shows you around. It says, I did the facial expression you're doing now. And it says, you know, go left, go right, tells you about the room you're in. And every room you go in, there's a representation of that room on the iPad, a picture of it. So we're walking around Graceland, I'm sort of slowly realising that no one is actually looking at it. Everyone's sort of staring at their screen or occasionally taking out their phone to take a selfie and putting it away. I get a bit sort of irritable. And we got to the jungle room, which was Elvis's favourite room in Graceland. It's got loads of fake plants. And there was a Canadian couple standing next to us. I'll never forget them. And the man turned to his wife and he said, honey, this is amazing. Look. If you swipe left, you can see the jungle room to the left. And if you swipe right, you can see the jungle room to the right. And I, I laughed because I thought he was kidding. And I looked at them and they were just swiping back and forth. And I I leaned over and I said, but hey, sir, there's um, there's an old-fashioned form of swiping you could do. It's called turning your head because we're in the jungle room. You don't have to look at the picture of it on the internet. We're literally there. You can look at it right with your own eyes. And they looked at me like I was completely deranged and backed out the room and I I turned to my godson to laugh about it and he was standing in the corner staring at Snapchat because in the minute we landed, 
he just couldn't stop. He could not stop. And I, I went up to him and I did that thing that's never a good idea with a teenager. I tried to grab the phone out of his hands. And I said to him, I know you're afraid of missing out, but this is guaranteeing that you'll miss out. You're not present at the events of your own life. You're not showing up at your own existence. And he stormed off, understandably. And I wandered around Memphis on my own that day. And I found him that night at the Heartbreak Hotel where we were staying up the street. He was sitting by the guitar. (laughs) He was sitting by the guitar shaped swimming pool. And I went up to him and he was looking at his phone and I apologised to him for getting so angry. And he said, I know something's really wrong, but I don't know what it is. And that's when I thought, you know, I need, I, I need to stop putting off thinking about this. I need to go and investigate this. So I ended up going on this huge journey all over the world from Moscow to Miami to Melbourne to interview over 200 of the leading experts on attention and focus and to learn what's really happening to us. And crucially, for me, it's the most important thing. Well, what, what do we do to get our attention back? Well, I mean, you, you also told a, a brief story about your visit to the Louvre, to the most famous work of art and history where the Mona Lisa's on the wall there now behind bulletproof glass. I mean, just the other day it was attacked by somebody. Oh, was it? I didn't know. Well, someone threw painted it, but I mean, it was, you know, it's protected either way. Um, and I noticed this when I was there and I don't know, about eight years ago. Um, nobody's really looking at the Mona Lisa. You watched it for a while. You actually waited to see if anyone would spend more than a couple of seconds just looking at this great work of art, which spellbound and mesmerized people for generations and all they were doing was taking selfies well you see it's really interesting when you stand there and i recommend anyone who's planning to go to paris actually go and look at this because it's a really interesting phenomenon what happens is there's a huge crowd in front of the mona lisa and people sort of wrestle their way to the front but the minute they get there they turn their back on the mona lisa take out their phone take a selfie and walk away almost everyone does that I, i stood there for a at least an hour, and no one looked at the Mona Lisa for more than a, f- a few seconds. And it was so interesting to me, s- seeing this all over the world, it seemed to me a symptom of something much bigger, which is th- th- this this kind of catastrophic disintegration of attention. It, make, it means that the Mona Lisa smile now looks like this quite ironic, hey, why wouldn't you guys look at me like you used to? But um, And the reason this is so important is, you know, I would say to anyone listening... Think about anything you've ever achieved in your life that you're proud of, whether it's starting a business, being a good parent, learning to play the guitar, whatever it is. That thing that you're proud of required a huge amount of sustained focus and attention. And when your ability to pay attention breaks down, your ability to solve your problems breaks down, your ability to achieve your goals breaks down, you feel less incompetent because you feel less competent because you are, in fact, more incompetent. Um, So this is this is, you know, it can seem like a a minor irritation not being able to pay attention it's the it's the prerequisite to everything else one of the leading experts on attention in the world an amazing man named dr james williams said to me you know imagine you're driving somewhere and someone throws a huge bucket of mud over your windshield yeah. doesn't matter what you've got to do when you get to your destination the first thing you've got to do is clean your windshield because you can't do anything if you don't sort that out and that to me is the attention crisis right there's bigger problems in the world but if we don't solve this problem we can't get to any of the bigger problems i have to just explain something sorry i just did a tv interview where they put um makeup on you. makeup on me and uh have a slight allergic reaction because i once wrote a book about why we should legalize drugs years ago called jason scream <laughs> if you've argued for legalizing drugs and you start rubbing your nose in public it looks they very dodgy so um so i'm just going to explain <laughs> to your viewers or listeners that i am um, no that's, that's not the a reason problem. why <laughs> now listen there's a part of this mona lisa thing that also struck me as being very concerning and that is this 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 huge amount of narcissism that's developing in mm. every quarter of society and particularly with young people where it's all if it's not me 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 all the time it just doesn't matter you also mentioned at another point in the book that you you were eavesdropping on this this couple who were having a conversation and all they were doing was talking about themselves to the point where they weren't even listening to the answers. They were already thinking about what else they could say about themselves. And it may as well have just been reading each other's Facebook posts because there was no actual interaction or connection. I think I'm sorry. What narcissism is partly is attention blocked. So it's blocked on the self. All you can look at is yourself or think about yourself, right? And I, I think you're absolutely right. There's, there's been a huge increase in narcissism. Um, and I think one way of... thinking about that that might help people if you think about it in relation to um there's four different kinds of attention i learned about this from dr james williams i mentioned before completely amazing guy he'd Mm. so he'd worked at the heart of google he was horrified moscow 
Yeah, yeah. He's, he's in Moscow because he's, he's actually not there anymore, but his wife, because of everything that's happened, but his wife works for the World Health Organization, which is why I interviewed him there. Right. And um, he, he, he was just horrified by what Google would do to people's attention. He quit and became, I would argue, the leading philosopher of attention in the whole world. And he argues there's three kinds of attention... I actually would argue there's a fourth. I know he agrees with this. Can I put it to him? Um, which might help us to think about this is why. The spotlight. Yeah, exactly. So, love this. so the first level of attention is the one that we mostly think about when we think, oh, my attention's not very good. And it's what we call our spotlight. So you think about, we're speaking in a room now, right? If I zone out my attention, I can clock, okay, I can hear the air conditioning. There's a load of books over there. If I turned around, there's the um, control room. I can see the lovely people who work here. There's a mu- nice mural on the wall. Uh, there's your phone there. My phone's in my bag. I'm screening all of that out and I'm, I'm narrowing my spotlight down to you. What did you just ask me? Okay, we're talking about attention. So your spotlight is your ability to narrow down all the stuff that you're being exposed to down to one thing, one short-term immediate action. I'm now answering your question because I've narrowed my spotlight down to you, right? So our spotlight is being disrupted all the time. So imagine that now I said to you, you know what, let's pause for a second. I want to go and get a Diet Coke. And I go to the fridge and on the way there, I get a text from my friend Rob and I start reading it. I'm like, oh God, what's happened here? I start replying. And then I'm like, why the hell did I come into this room? Mm. I forget. I come back and I don't have my Diet Coke, right? That kind of thing's happening to us all the time. So that's the kind of low level disruption of your spotlight that's happening to most people, you know, a all lot of time. times throughout the day, yeah. right? That's the most obvious form of uh, interruption to our attention, but actually um, it's not the most, it's very annoying and it debilitates you, but it's not the most important. The next level up is what Dr. Williams calls your starlight. And that's not your ability to achieve a short-term goal, like I'm going to go to the fridge and get a Diet Coke. That's your ability to achieve a longer-term goal, like I'm going to set up a business, I'm going to write a book, I want to be a good parent, right? And he argues, and there's lots of evidence for this, if you're jammed up in the short term, your ability to to achieve your longer term goals starts to break down as well, right? It's called your starlight because if you're lost in the desert and you don't have GPS, you look to the stars and you're like, oh shit, that's the way I was heading, right? The level above that is what he calls your daylight. And your daylight isn't your ability to achieve your long term goals. Your daylight is your ability to even figure out what your long term goals are in the first place. How do you know what business you want to set up? How do you know what it means to be a good parent? How do you know you want to write a book about something? How do you know what you want to write about? To get those things, you have to have moments of deep thought. You have to have moments of rest. You have to let your mind wander. If you're just jammed up all the time, you never get to those things. Um, you, you're, you're, he argues, you, the phrase he uses is you decohere. You yeah. lose your ability to even think about what your long-term goals are in a coherent way. You start to feel like you, you don't quite know who you are. And then there's a level of, it's called your daylight because when a room is flooded with daylight, you can see it most clearly. Um, And there's a level, I would argue, even above that, which I would call our stadium lights, which is our ability to see each other and to achieve longer term goals collectively, right? Which comes back to narcissism. Um, We can see this happening all over the world in countries as different as Britain, Brazil and Burma. We can't listen to each other. We scream abuse at each other. We, we are lost in anger and rage and caricatures of the other side. Um, and when this is happening in so many different places, you know there's an underlying dynamic that's going on, right? We can talk, I'm sure yeah. we'll talk more about what that underlying dynamic is. So at all these levels, what seems like a relatively small thing, oh, my attention isn't as good as it used to be, you realise actually opens up onto the whole, the whole of your life and the whole of the life of the society, when attention breaks down, you start to have all sorts of cascading problems, which is why it's so important that we understand the 12, the scientific evidence for the 12 causes of attention problems, which range quite widely. They, a lot of them I had never even thought about when I started doing the, the research for stolen focus and crucially what we do about them. So I, w- I want to get into the, the idea that too much information is not a good thing because this goes, it flies in the face of all of evolutionary history, you know, where, no, no, I mean, (laughs) to to, to the degree that humans, the more information we had as primitive man, the better our chances, not only of surviving, but also figuring out the environment, being able to protect our kin, being able to hunt with more accuracy, being able to start small agricultural projects and that kind of thing. Um, But, but you found out from, I think it's professor Miller, uh, Earl, professor Earl. Yeah. Um, 
that our IQ actually drops when we're constantly distracted. If we have screens around us all the time, people's messages are going off. And you, I know this from meetings, but I, I just get, I guess it intuitively. I didn't know the, the statistical evidence for this, which you've dug up, about how your IQ points can actually drop by 10 when you are constantly distracted by noises, technology, um, interruptions, news, whatever it might be. And that's actually worse for you than being addicted to a substance like marijuana, like, like weed. So it's a huge – this is, um, again, one of those things that seems quite small when we first think about it. And then when you look at the evidence, you realize how big it is. So I went to MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, to interview exactly the guy you mentioned, a guy called Professor Earl Miller, who's one of the leading neuroscientists in the whole world. And he said to me, look, you've got to understand one thing about the human brain more than anything else. You can only consciously think about one or two things at a time. That's it. So all these people who say that they can do more, that's nonsense. Well, it's a fundamental limitation of the human brain. The human brain has not changed in 40,000 years. It ain't going to change on any timescale we're going to see, right? No. You can only think about one or two things at a time. But what's happened is we've fallen for a kind of massive delusion. The average uh, teenager now believes they can follow six or seven forms of media at the same time. The rest of us are not far behind them. Um, so what happens is Professor Miller and scientists all over the world get people into labs, not just teenagers, older people, and they get them to think they're doing more than one thing at a time. And we've all had that feeling, right? Where you think you're doing more than one thing at a time. And what they discover is you can't do more than one thing at a time. What you do is you juggle very rapidly between tasks. You're like, wait, what did he just ask me? What's this message on my phone? What does it say on the TV there? What was that noise outside? What does it say on my phone now? What, what, what did you just ask me again? So we're juggling. We're juggling very rapidly. And it turns out that comes with a big cost. The kind of fancy technical term for it is the switch cost effect. Okay. When you try and do more than one thing at a time, you do all the things you're trying to do much less competently. You make more mistakes. You remember less of what you do. Um, you, you're much less creative. And again, that sounds like a small thing, but you, you uh, alluded to a, a quite a small experiment that's backed by a wider body of evidence that really helped me to understand this. So Hewlett-Packard, the printer company, got a scientist in to study their workers and they split them into two groups. And the first group was told, get on with your task, whatever it is, and you're not going to be interrupted. Just do whatever you've got to do. And the second group was told, get on with your task, whatever it is. Um, but at the same time, you've got, to answer, you've got to answer a heavy load of email and phone calls. So pretty much how most of us live. And this group was monitored. And at the end, he tested the IQ of both groups. The group that had been chronically interrupted scored on average 10 IQ points lower than the group that hadn't been interrupted. To give you a sense of how big that is, like you say, if you and me got stoned now, if we smoked a fat spliff together, our IQs would go down in the short term by five points. So at least in the short term, if you were a chronic stoner, it'd be different. But in the sure. short term, you'd be better off sitting at your desk, yep. um, getting stoned and doing one thing at a time than sitting at your desk, not getting stoned and trying to do loads of things at the same time. Um, this is why Professor Miller says we're living in a perfect storm of cognitive degradation as a result of being constantly interrupted. Think about another piece of research by a guy called Professor Michael Posner mm. at the University of Oregon, um, who found that if you're interrupted, it takes you on average 23 minutes to get back to the level of focus you had before you were interrupted. But most of us never get 23 minutes. So when someone says to you, you know, why didn't you respond to my text right away? It would have only taken you 10 seconds. You want to go, no, it would have taken me 10 seconds Plus, Plus the 23 minutes. minutes. Exactly. And who has that? No one. Exactly. So the other thing that I, I thought was really instructive was this, the story about this kid in World War II um, and the, the fact that he discovered the power of this flow state, which, I mean, I'm summarizing here, but, you know, people must buy the book. I mean, you're not going to do all the work for them. The fact is we've all been in this situation. We all know what it feels like when you're in a flow state, when you're engaged in a project, you, you're, you're thinking about something. It must happen to you when you're writing. When you're on a roll, you just want to keep on going. And it all just comes very easily and very naturally. And your brain is really firing on all cylinders. This is something you can train yourself to do. And I know there are all these awful charlatan motivational speakers running around <laughs> who are trying to convince people that they have superpowers. But this really is a superpower. 
Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. The guy who discovered this who I interviewed, I, I'm pretty sure I did the last interview he ever did, sadly, because he, he died soon afterwards. But a completely amazing man named Professor Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. It took me so fucking long to learn how to say that name that you, I'm going to say. You helpfully, exactly. you helpfully explained us how to say his name in the book. I am going to keep saying that surname throughout this conversation <laughs> just because it took me so long. Um, so he's an amazing guy and he um, he discovered, like you say, everyone listening will have experienced a flow state. It's when you just get into the zone doing something. And it can be anything. It can be making bagels. It can be doing brain surgery. It can be rock climbing, whatever it is. Uh, it's when you're in the zone, you're doing something, you're really deeply in it and time seems to fall away. And it's, it's not difficult to do. Actually, it's incredibly easy when you're in a, a flow state. You know, the way one rock climber put it is when you're in flow, it's like you are the rock you're climbing, right? So Professor Cheek sent me high. He first identifies this in the, in the sixties what is this psychological state? And he basically spent 60 years researching it and made incredible breakthroughs. And he's one of the most influential psychologists of the last century. Mm. Um, and, and he discovered loads of things. So he discovered that crucially flow is like a kind of gusher of attention that exists in all of us. Right. And crucially it's both the deepest form of attention you can provide. And once you get into it, the easiest form of attention to provide. So I was like, whoa, this is a good deal. How do we do it, right? And he discovered a huge number of things about this, but I think there's three that would help people listening who want to maximize their chances of getting into a flow state. Um, so to, to, and there's no guarantee, but this improves your odds. Firstly, you've got to narrow your focus down to one thing, right? If you're trying to do three things at once, you'll never get into flows. So you've got to be, I want to paint this canvas. I want to write this chapter. I want to climb this rock. You've got to do one thing. Secondly, it will really help if you choose to do something that's meaningful to you. Um, it's very hard to get flow states if something isn't important to you, if it isn't meaningful. So, you know, for some people getting into flow states, climbing rocks, I would just fucking fall off the rock and die. That would be no use. Well, there'd be a flow state because the blood would flow out of my body. But there, so, you know, some people, it'd be pain. And the Dalai Lama would say, Exactly. Glow, Lama. that fucker. Exactly. <laughs> he'd be, he'd turn up at the funeral and dance on my grave. The, um, very sad affair. The, um, so that, yeah, the, choose something meaningful to you. Yeah. And thirdly, and this is, a, seems counterintuitive, it felt to me anyway, it felt counterintuitive when I learned it. You should choose something that's at the edge of your comfort zone choose something that's quite difficult when you find something hard actually you're more likely to get into flow so the key you've got to get into a sweet spot where it's at the edge of your abilities but not beyond it so let's imagine that you're a rock climber uh, let's imagine you're a medium talent rock climber you don't just want to t- climb over your garden wall it's too easy you won't get into flow doing that equally you don't want to suddenly climb mount everest you'll just get overwhelmed it'll be too much you want to climb a slightly higher and harder rock face than the one you climbed last right so flow begins at the edge of your comfort zone so if you do these three things narrow down to one one goal and make sure it's a meaningful goal push yourself to the edge of your abilities but not beyond it you hugely increase your chances of getting into a flow state and accessing the deepest form of attention you can provide but once you hear that you can see how so many of the ways we live have pushed us away from being able to get into those states, being interrupted all the time. A lot of us are forced to do work that is not meaningful to yeah. us. Oh, absolutely. Um, or we're exhausted when we do it. Oh, yeah. Um, or very repetitive work. So you can see how some of the ways in which we, we're living. Obviously, I try to talk about the solutions to, to all of this, but the, the, um, yeah. So that, I think you've gone to a really important one about flow. One of my favorite things about the book is um, the fact that you you detail your own journey of giving up on on technology for as long as you possibly could. You went off to what Provincetown yeah. in, in Rhode Island, and you you essentially did without all of those things that we all assume we can never do without ever again. You did without Google navigation. You did without constant phone calls. You did without being able to Uber. All of these things, and you did this before the pandemic. Um, the pandemic, obviously, I think you were probably better prepared than many of us for that in some ways because you maybe discovered some important keys to how we should be living and maybe made yourself a little happier than the majority of people were. But you admit that the pandemic also was hard on you as it was on all of us because suddenly we had to revert to these screens. We were, we were consuming a very, very ugly diet of just nonstop news and worrying concerning ourselves with things that in a previous generation or two, uh, perhaps a little longer, would have been unnecessary, would have been 
outside of our realm of, of, of influence and, and, and the things that could influence us. But I, I'm, I'm interested in how you gave up the technology because for so many of us, we always find an excuse why we can't do this. And the people who manage to do it always come out of it with something really profound, something really positive, and certainly feeling and, 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 and thinking a lot better. Yeah, remind me to come back to COVID in a little while, but the, mm. cause that's really important too. But yeah, I, I realize now I learned a lot from this experience being offline and I realized I was actually, I think I was kind of wrong in my ideas from the start. So at the start of writing Stolen Focus, I thought, well, I know why my attention's gone to shit. Uh, A, I'm weak. There's something wrong with my willpower. And B, uh, someone invented the smartphone and that fucked me over. Right? So I actually had a funny insight with willpower where I went to interview a guy called Professor Roy Baumeister, who's the leading expert on willpower in the whole world. He's done loads of the most famous experiments. So I go to interview him. It's very early in the uh, process for the book. And I said to him, so I'm you know, writing this book about why people can't pay attention. I'm really interested in your insights, how they could apply. And he says something like the exact words are in the book, but he says something like, yeah, it's interesting you say that because I've noticed I can't really pay attention very much anymore. He had, I just, no, he had no willpower either. I play video games on my phone all the time. <laughs> And I was sort of sitting there, I was like, Oh God, what if the he's gone, fuck? if he's <laughs> gone, who do we have? It was like the moment in Invasion of the Body Snatchers where they realize everyone's been fucking body snatched, yeah. right? Um, so, but, so I, I thought, okay, I know what's <laughs> wrong with me. Someone invented the smartphone. My willpower isn't strong enough. So I thought, okay, I know what to do about this. I'll exercise my willpower. I'll separate myself from the smartphone. So I was in the incredibly, ridiculously privileged, lucky position that one of my books got made into a, a movie, a Hollywood movie. So I had money for the first time in my life. Hey, Samuel L. Uh, Jackson, right? Oh, right. Oh. Uh, or Sam, as I refer let's, to him. Yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's just remind people. We're not uh, just talking to some garden variety author here. I, I, it, it was so interesting because I, I had this money and I thought, well, why am I sitting here feeling like shit? So what I did is I rented a, a room in a beach house in a place called Provincetown and I just went there and I had no laptop that could get online and I had no smartphone. You actually and, told them to disconnect this. Yeah, I had to get the modem. I, I had to buy, yeah, I, they took the modem out of the apartment. <laughs> just in case. In case I somehow figured out some way to make my friend's broken laptop that had given me work, right? Um, and, and I learned loads of things in Provincetown. Um, I guess the, the, the biggest was just, you know, I thought I was nearly 40 when I went. I thought, well, maybe I'm just getting older. My attention's gone to shit because I'm getting older. My attention went back to being as good as it had been when I was 17. I could read like eight hours a day. I was amazed by how rapidly and how fully my attention came back. That was the biggest revelation for me. I actually later realised, when you think about the 12 causes uh, of our attention crisis, actually a lot of them changed in Provincetown. There's basically no fast food in Provincetown, so the way mm. I ate changed. The way we eat is really fucking up our ability to focus. Uh, again, Dalai Lama was right uh, yep. in his fat shaming. Um, the <laughs> sleep, I was sleeping much more than I than I normally do. There's a whole array of things that, that change. I'm sure we'll touch on some of the others. Well, you said when you first put your phone away and you had that first night of proper sleep in Provincetown, you slept for 15 hours. It was so weird. It was like And my you body. hadn't slept like that in years. It was like, it was a weirdly, it was like a kind of, I realized how much I, I lived in my normal life in a state of kind of mania, you know, being constantly, yeah. and it's not that, I mean, I, you know, I still read a lot of books. I still did things that were not just being online, but I realized how fractured i was and there was this initially this tremendous relief and then i had a really awful crash i remember i can remember it so clearly i was walking down in the west end of provincetown i was walking down the beach and i saw all these people looking at their phones mm. that weren't looking at the beach but for example, one of the most beautiful places in the world that look at the beach and instead of feeling what i felt in graceland and all the and in the louvre Instead of feeling like, oh, you fools, why are you not, you know, come on, get back to life. I wanted to grab the phones of them and go, fucking give me that. Let me look at it. I want it. I want it. And it was all, it really was like a withdrawal from a drug effect, you know. Um, and I, I sort of realized, you know, my life had been filled with these kind of thin, insistent signals of the internet. Did you feel just as if you were alone? That, that, That's a really that good way of putting left it. Out? I felt like... Ultimate FOMO. I wouldn't even put it like that. I felt like this is a very pretentious way of putting it, but Simone de Beauvoir, the French philosopher, said that when she became an atheist, it was like the world had gone silent. And that's how I felt. I felt like the world had wow. gone silent. Because if you, 
if you're getting these signals all the time from the world, I see you, I see you, I see you. Very thin signals, right? They're not good signals. They're not satisfying signals, but they're, and then suddenly they're gone. And no normal person, when you've just met them, floods you with hearts. So that would be a very weird interaction. I know Jennifer Rush did that with you, but we don't all have <laughs> the great joy of Jennifer Rush. Um, the, the, you know, the, 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 sorry, people are going to wonder what the fuck I'm talking about. We'll <laughs> no, explain, explain later. Explain. Uh, but the, the, it felt really odd. And I sort of realized then, oh, actually, when you leave this stuff behind, you create a vacuum that you then had to fill with meaning and things that are important to you, which I then did. And obviously, I, I went back to thinking a lot about flow and did a lot of writing and, and really just deep conversations with people. And I remember at the end of my three months in Provincetown, three months completely offline, I went to, there's a lighthouse at the edge of Provincetown and I was looking back over the Cape and I could see everywhere I had been for three months. And I remember thinking, God, I'm never going to go back to how I was before. Why would I go back? This It's been amazing. And I got the ferry back to Boston and I got my phone back from my friend Shailene and my laptop. And within two weeks, I was never quite went back to where I was before, but I was like 70% back to where I was before. I felt really sick about it. And actually it was again, Dr. Williams who helped me to understand it when I went to see him in Moscow. He said, look, the mistake you've made, Johan, is it's like thinking the solution to air pollution is for you personally to wear a gas mask, right? I'm not against gas masks. If I lived in Beijing, I'd wear a gas mask. But it's not the solution to air pollution. The solution is to actually solve the source of the pollution, mm. right? And that was when I was like, oh, what does that mean? And then I ended up going on this big journey and I kind of realised with 11 of the 12 factors that are harming our attention that I write about in Style and Focus, I think it's sort of two levels at which we've got to deal with them. I think of them as defense and offense, right? Mm -hmm. So there are loads of things we can do as individuals to defend ourselves and our children. And a lot of my books are about what we can do with our kids, obviously. Um, defend ourselves and our children against these factors that are degrading our attention. So I'll give you an example of one. Obviously, I give dozens in the book, but I'll give you an example of one. Um, I always feel a bit like a QVC person when I say this, but I don't get any money for this, I'll show you. Uh, so if you go online, you can buy something called a K-safe. I've got one at home and one in my office. K-safe is a plastic safe. Uh, you take off the lid, you put in your phone, you put on the lid, you turn the dial at the top and it will lock your phone away for anything between five minutes and a whole day. And if you want to get it, get the phone out before then you just have to smash it. Right. And then you'd have to buy another case safe. Um, there's also an app you can put on your laptop called freedom that just cuts you off either from specific websites. So say you were addicted to Twitter or Pornhub or whatever it might be. It can block you from them specifically, or it can block you from the entire internet. Um, and so I use both of them. I will not have my friends come around for dinner unless everyone puts their phone in the phone jail, right? Um, I won't sit down and watch a film with my partner unless we're both in prison our phones. Um, <laughs> I use my, my phone jail four hours a day just to get a clear mind. Um, I would say everyone with children, you know, and a lot of people with kids who are telling their kids to use their phone less while staring at their own phones. I would say everyone who's got kids have at least an hour a day where you all imprison your phones and you have to talk to each other. So it's just creating some of those spaces. There's lots of other things, obviously. And you've stuck to this. I mean, this is, you, you, you know, you were giving yourself a very hard time because when you, you left Provincetown, you thought, I'll, I'll never go back. And then you ended up doing that in two weeks, but not really. Well, I had to then, so I then had this, so I had this amazing relief in Provincetown. Then I come back and I had a slump and then I realized, oh, I have to build techniques to protect myself. Okay. Right. Okay. And then I started to build in lots of techniques of which this is one <clears> of them. But I want to be really honest with people because I, I don't think other books about attention are honest with people, not fully honest with people. Um, I am passionately in favour of these individual changes. They will really help. I urge everyone to do them. I do them. But on their own, they're not going to solve the problem. Because at the moment, it's like someone is pouring itching powder over us all day. And then they're leaning forward and going, do you know what, mate? Um, you might want to learn how to meditate. Then you wouldn't scratch so much. <laughs> and you want to go, well, fuck you. I'll learn to meditate. Pilates. That's really valuable. Do some but Pilates. You need to stop pouring this fucking itching powder on right. me. Right. Right. <laughs> so we've got to actually, this is why I talk about offense. Yeah. We've got to actually take on the factors that are doing this to us. Um, and we've got to stop them. Well, right? it's, I mean, you are, you do use aggressive terminology, the phone jail and, you know, imprison your phone. And you're talking, this is, this is about taking control back. 
yeah. the, the, the reality is that Silicon Valley is not looking to give you pleasure and efficiency and all of those things. They're looking to imprison you in a, in a prison all of their own devising, which is to keep your attention on the nonsense so that they can have your attention to sell to advertisers. They don't care about you. And the sooner you realize that, the better. Just saying, because when people first said that to me, when I started researching the book, I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, obviously interviewing people who designed key aspects of the world in which we live. These are the smartest people around now. Yeah. They're, they're hired at enormous cost to those companies because they're the best. And they well, prove it. And I remember when people first said to me what you said, I thought, oh, that sounds a bit simplistic to me. It sounds or a bit, a bit conspiratorial. Sinister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I remember going and interviewing loads, so many people who were at the heart of the machine and them sort of saying, explaining it to me, going, how did you think it worked? And I, I realized I felt like I was like a, a maiden aunt in a Victorian novel who someone was explaining fingering to for the first time. Like, what, what do you mean? Right? Like, like, and everybody else going, what did you fucking think happened? Right? It was like this weird... So, I explained to you the way they explained it to me. <laughs> exactly. Oh dear. You know. And they're like, no, no, this is this is right. how it works, right? The, the, sort of like David Williams. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Right, the, it was this weird I remember it was so interesting interviewing these people as well because they felt so guilty about what they'd done. You know, they were really tortured by what they'd but done. That's at least redeeming. It was it was fascinating to see. Um, so the way lots of them explained it to me, someone like Asa Raskin, who invented a key part of how the internet works, most websites work, uh, his dad, Jeff Raskin, invented the Apple Macintosh for Steve Jobs. And Asa said to me, we're talking about, if you, imagine any, anyone listening now, please don't do this for all the reasons I've just explained, but if you were to open TikTok or Facebook or Twitter now and start scrolling through them or any of the mainstream social media apps, they start to, they start to make money out of you in two ways. First way is really obvious. You see advertising, okay, everyone gets that. The second way is much more important. They learn uh, that everything you do on these apps is scanned and sorted by the artificial intelligence algorithms to figure out what keeps you scrolling, right? What are the weaknesses in your attention? What What is it for you? Is it cat videos? Is it people being angry about politics? Whatever it is, right? Mm. It's figuring that out. For a very simple reason, the longer you scroll or the longer your kids scroll, the more money these companies make. And every time you and your kids close the app, that revenue stream disappears. So this is where the fingering analogy comes in. Oh, sorry, I've never said that <laughs> sentence before. Uh, the, all of this AI, all of these algorithms, all of this genius in Silicon Valley is geared towards figuring out one thing. How do we get you to pick up your phone as often as possible? And keep scrolling as long as possible, right? Your attention is their product. That's it. Just like the head of KFC, all he cares about is he may care about other things as a private individual, but in his capacity in that company, all he cares about is how much KFC did you, did you go to KFC today? How big was the bucket you bought? That's it, right? It's all he cares about. All these companies care about is how often did you pick up, open the app and how long did you keep scrolling? That's it. It's that basic, right? And they are unbelievably good at raiding our attention, as everyone who's used the internet has noticed, right? All right. So how about this argument that more information is always better and the idea that this is all just because of cell, cell technology, of mobile technology, of laptops, the internet, computers. Has this already been happening for a long time before yeah. these things? Yeah, it's definitely not only due to this. This is one component. And, and it's really important to understand as well the way big tech wants us to think about this they want the debate to be are you pro-tech or are you anti-tech right and when you hear that you're like <clears throat> well fuck i'm not going to join the amish right so i guess i'm pro-tech i'm not going to give up my technology even i couldn't do what i did in provincetown for longer than three months right no sure um uh but i'm sure um, you weren't writing your book on paper either no no i couldn't do that i wouldn't be able to i had a broken laptop because i wouldn't be able to write on paper anymore um but <laughs> yeah that that's not the debate the debate is not are you pro-tech or are you anti-tech mm. the debate is what tech do you want working in whose interests right because at the moment we have tech that is designed to hack and invade your attention to sell it to advertisers it works in their interests right but i would like to see and it's entirely technologically feasible it exists 
I would like us to use technology that works in our interest to achieve our goals, not in their interest to achieve their goals for us, right? Um, and that can sound very kind of fancy. And by the way, this is this tech is only one of the 12 causes. I actually don't even think it's the biggest cause. Um, we can come back to that. But so to deal with that, it can sound really daunting, right? You can be like, oh, fucking hell then. If we've got a, you know, up. It, it can make you feel, and I have moments of feeling <clears> like this, but actually uh, I feel very encouraged about this because the solutions, precisely because it's not an anti-tech argument, the solutions are easier to achieve in many ways. We don't have to give up the technology. We have to change how the technology works. And there's a historical analogy that played out here in South Africa, played out in Britain, that really helped me to think about this. And a wonderful uh, Silicon Valley guy called Jaron Lanier um, was the person who helped me to think about this. So you're, I think we're probably about the same age. How old are you? Yeah, 45. Yeah, so we're almost exactly the same age. Um, That when we were kids, the standard form of petrol was leaded petrol, right? I remember it. And a little bit before I talk, in fact, not before uh, your time in South Africa, but before my time in Britain, it was quite normal that people painted their homes with leaded paint. Yeah. Right? And... You used to paint toys with leaded paint. It's just like, yeah. Um, And it was discovered by scientists that exposure to lead really harms people's brains and particularly harms their ability to focus and pay attention, right? It's particularly... There are people who say that it might even have been the reason for the decline of the Roman Empire. Yeah, it's not an unplausible... Boom, boom, lead, plumbing. Yeah, yeah, people uh, like uh, Vesuvius, the the architect, were were warning about that um, in Rome, in ancient Rome. It was known for a really Mm. long time. Um, And obviously, if it's in petrol, it belts out into the air. Everyone was breathing in lead, right? Um, and it was really harming people's brains. Uh, it's one of the reasons why there was a big spike in violence in the 1960s, actually. There was a big increase in lead exposure, and th- we know it leads to violent disinhibition in a small number of people, but it's big enough that, you know, it has okay. a huge social effect. Um, so what happened was a group of ordinary mothers banded together and said, why the fuck are we allowing this? Why are we allowing these for-profit companies to screw up our children's brains. This is crazy, right? And it's really important to notice what those mothers didn't say. They didn't say, so let's ban paint. Let's ban petrol, right? They didn't say that. Well, let's ban cars. Exactly. Yeah. They said, let's deal with the specific element in the paint and the petrol that is harming our kids' brains. So these mothers said, just ban leaded paint and ban leaded petrol and force us to move to other forms of paint and petrol. And at first, they were ignored. Like Gandhi said, first they ignore you then they laugh at you, then they fight you, then you win, right? These mothers were ridiculed, but they fought like hell for their children. And it took them a long time. But everyone listening knows we don't have any leaded paint anymore. We don't have any leaded petrol. They're gone, right? They don't exist anymore. There's a few countries in the world where they do, but almost everywhere banned them. Um, as a result, the Centre for Disease Control in the US calculated the average child is three to five IQ points higher than they would have been had we not banned the lead wow. in that petrol, right? Now, to me, that's a really good model for actually almost all of the 12 causes of attention and focus problems that I'm writing about in Stolen Focus, um, they identified the specific element that's harming us. They banded together. In the case of lead, lead, there was nothing you could do to protect yourself at an individual level, right? You, if it's in the air, sure. there's nothing you can do. I mean, you can try to move to the countryside, I guess, uh, but that's it. Um, they identified what had to be done and they fought for it to be done and they fought over a long time and they succeeded. So... When it comes to tech, I mean, for all of the 12 factors, um, for all of the 12 causes, and some of them are even bigger than tech, but for all of the 12 causes that are harming our attention and focus, um, there's a fight like this that we can do. So think about, I remember saying to Aza, who, who, you know, who I mentioned before, who invented a key part of how the internet works. I remember discussing this analogy with Aza and saying, well, what's the equivalent of the lead in the lead, in the lead paint for our tech? Yeah. What's that one element? And he said, it's the current business model. So at the moment, like we were saying, the way these companies make their money is the the longer you scroll, the more ads you see, the more money they make, right? But he explained, social media doesn't have to work that way. We can have all the social media we currently have and have it operate on a different principle, which almost everyone listening has experience of. In fact, I guess everyone listening has experience of. So there's two alternative business models, right? So he said... That business model, the current one, the kind of fancy term for it is surveillance capitalism, yeah. um, which is a phrase that was coined by Professor Shoshana Zuboff at Harvard. Um, so that business model, Asa said, just say it's inhuman to have a business model that is designed to hack and invade us and our kids' attention. We don't allow it. It's like lead and lead paint. And he said, then they would have to move to one of the other two business models. 
And like I say, everyone's got some experience with them. The first one is subscription. Okay. Everyone knows how HBO works, Netflix. You pay a certain amount of money. In return, you get access to the product. So maybe it'd be a very small amount every month. But the key thing is then all the incentives change. Suddenly, at the moment, you're not the customer of Facebook and TikTok and Twitter. You're the product they sell to the no. real customer, right? Your attention is the product they sell. But suddenly they have to go, not, how do we hack you in order to invade your attention? How do we get you to opt in? Exactly. How do we, what do you want? Mm. Oh, it turns out you want to meet up with your friends offline because it turns out, as we all learned in the last two years, looking into each other's faces <laughs> makes us feel good, whereas fucking doom scrolling through pictures makes us feel like shit. Okay. <laughs> let's design it. Let's, let's add a button that goes, Oh, your, your, these are your friends who are nearby who want to meet up. We, the whole thing could be designed to promote and encourage people to meet up offline rather than as it is at the moment to keep them scrolling. Pay us and you don't have to see the ads. Exactly. And we, right? don't, and we won't watch you the whole time like a creep. We won't monitor you. We won't invade yeah. your attention. So that's the one. We won't What's make you feel one? like shit. So the other one, um, and everyone listening will have experience of that, is um, think about the sewers. Before we had sewers, we had shit in the streets. This is obviously still <laughs> this is some part of Great start. allegory, this. Right. You know, uh, and then we all pay to build the sewers and we all own the sewers together, right? You know, you own the sewers here in Johannesburg. I own the sewers in London. We collectively own the sewers with everyone else here. Now, it may be that, like, we own the sewage pipes together because uh, we don't want to get cholera. We want to own the information pipes together because we're getting a kind of cholera for our attention and I would argue our politics, right? Mm. So one form could be public ownership independent of government. If you think about how the BBC works in Britain, right? Every British person who owns a television pays a license fee. Right. We do the it BBC here. We're supposed to. Yeah. The BBC works for us, but it doesn't work for the government, right? It works for the British people. It's not perfect, but it is the most respected media institution in the whole world, right? Which does tell you something. Um, so... We could have an independent, um, so public ownership, independent government. But whichever model we choose, the key thing is to understand you can have all the benefits. We still have Facebook. You still have Twitter. You still have TikTok. But they're not designed to hack and invade your attention. They can actually be designed to heal your attention. Mm, good luck getting China to opt into that. Well, actually, funny enough, although I <clears throat> despise the Chinese communist I mean, What they tyranny, have done is they've, they've, they've forbidden their own children to to be on there and they they restrict exactly. gaming gaming to once a week and exactly on the weekends and it's not worth having a horrible communist tyranny in order to get that don't get me wrong no sure but, but what they <laughs> that, if you look a, at what they're very high price <laughs> exactly but you look at look at what they're doing for their own but th look at what they're doing for their own people where they do actually now some of that is they restrict these things because they're for despicable reasons where they want to control um yes political information and political yeah. dissent and so on but some of that is also they're seeing look this has real problems this causes real problems for children in particular and that's why we have to regulate it but think about if if people think oh well we can't do that that's too difficult right think about what happened in australia uh two years ago now so scott morrison who's a center-right prime minister not someone i'm sympathetic to in general um he said, so as is happening everywhere, um, advertising that used to go to the media, print media, now goes to Facebook. So even though people are getting their news from a newspaper on Facebook, none of that money is going to the newspaper. So it's just bankrupting the news media all over the world. So um, Scott Morrison said, to his credit, said to Facebook, well, you've got to start giving a percentage of your advertising revenue to the news media right? Because you're benefiting from the news media providing the service on Facebook. It's obviously in the interest of the country that we have news gathering. Uh, you've got to pay a percentage. And Facebook shit the bed. They said we will cut Australia off from Facebook. They cut off huge amounts of the information. They just went apeshit. And Scott Morrison stood his ground and quietly Facebook gave in, right? They didn't give in in quite the way Scott Morrison asked, but they, they gave in, right? What that should show you is we are much more powerful than them, right? Yeah. They are a despised little group of very rich people. Yeah. Uh, and we are many, right? And it, a lot of the shift that I argue for in Stolen Focus is about a shift in, how would I put it? Almost like a shift in the way we think about these things. Firstly, we need to stop blaming ourselves. It's not your fault. The book is called Stolen Focus because someone stole it, right? right? And not just the tech companies, these 11 other forces as well. Um but also, you know, we need to realise we are not medieval peasants begging at the court of King Zuckerberg 
for a few little crumbs of attention from his table, right? We are the free citizens of democracies, right? Hard-won democracies, in the case of this country in particular. We own our own minds, and we can take our minds back if we want to. We're not just subjects of these bigger forces, right? That We can, you know, um, one person said to me, you know, the axe existed for 1.4 million years before anyone said, guys, should we put a handle on this thing, right? The entire internet has existed for less than 10,000 days, right? We can deal with this and the 11 other factors if we want to. I went to places that are dealing with these with these problems from New Zealand to to France. And as you said, it doesn't have to be a binary choice between anti or pro tech. It's absolutely not. You know, you can have you can have both. I mean, there is more information available to the average human being now than ever before. There's a huge and a lot amount of it is great about tremendous it. and useful. Exactly. And we want that. We want you're exactly right. But you shouldn't be have you sh- shouldn't have to be forced to choose between that and your sanity. That's a brilliant way of putting it. So and, so yeah. if that's true, I want to go back to the ana- analogy that was made by I think Dr. Williams where he explains how you crash a website. Because this is instructive and I thought it was the probably one of the best examples. In my mind, you crash a website by overloading it with information, by accessing it from as many places as possible, and essentially just breaking the system. You, you, you fragment its ability to actually respond to every digital request that's coming in. And our brains must operate in a similar way. Yeah, yeah, there's a, t- a term for that that I'm blanking on because I just landed. But the, yeah, where you, um, when, say for example, when the Russian state want to crash a website, they just get loads of people to log on simultaneously. It just overloads the server and causes a system crash. And he argues something similar to that is happening in our minds, right? We're just being hugely overloaded. And this combines with lots of other factors, like we sleep 20% less than people did a century ago. The food we're eating is... is, And actually, it's worth coming back to something you mentioned before about COVID, right? Mm. If you think about... uh, So at the start of COVID... A lot of people I knew who weren't doing the heroic work of, you know, emergency services, things that had to carry on. I remember a lot of them kind of saying to me, oh, we're going to be shut inside for a while. I'm going to learn French on Duolingo. I'm going to read Tolstoy. I'm going to go to these ambitious girls. And you will have noticed no one fucking read Tolstoy and no one learned French, right? You said if, you were going to read Tolstoy, didn't you? I, I did that in Provincetown, but no, that was before. <laughs> but 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 um, actually people during COVID Googling, how do I get my brain to work went up by more than 300%, right? So, um, and I think I was kind of weirdly well prepared to understand, and I think this particularly relates to South Africa in a funny way, I'll explain. Um, I think I was unusually well prepared to understand why people were not going to be able to achieve that goal. Because shortly before COVID hit, I'd interviewed an amazing woman called Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, who is later became the Surgeon General for California, the most senior medical figure in the state. But when I interviewed mm. her, she was um, a very distinguished um, doctor and an expert on stress and how it affects the brain. And she said to me, so imagine one day you were walking down the street and out of the blue, a bear attacked you right? And you survived. In the weeks and months that followed, something completely involuntary would happen to your attention. Um, you would find it harder to say, read a book, do deep fo- spotlight focus, because a big part of your brain is going to be like, where's the bear? Where's the fucking bear? Right? Something came out of the blue to attack me. <laughs> what else is going to come out of the blue to attack me? And that's not your brain failing. That's not your brain screwing up. That's your brain doing its job, right? Okay. Now imagine you were attacked by the bear again. Uh, and you survive against a vindictive fucking bear, but let's imagine it. It's like Leonardo DiCaprio exactly, in that movie. It's like the Revenant. <laughs> exactly. The, although he appeared to be raped by the bear, which is going a bit further. So that's horrible that's some, movie. Yeah, very, very disturbing and, and upsetting. Uh, although the makers did deny he was raped by the bear. Yeah, but yeah, if you yeah. watch it, it does, <laughs> it does looks look like awfully it. like the bear is, is raping you. him. Anyway, so, so let's imagine you're raped so by you've the been, fucking bear. Now you've been traumatized twice. Exactly. Then right. you're likely to flip into a state called hypervigilance. Hypervigilance is where, um, you really can't do spotlight focus because your brain is just like, what the fuck is going to come out of the blue and attack me now? And on a serious note, there are so many people in this country of ours who are victims of day-to-day violence who are in that state and who just cannot get out of it because their brains are now wired to look for the next threat that could be coming for them and often does. Yeah, they're in a state of hypervigilance. And and hypervigilance is where you cannot focus on on, uh, those deeper tasks. It's why, for example... um, traumatized children uh kids who are sexually abused or physically abused 
um, often start to do badly at school. Yeah. Because they're just, yeah. you try some, you know, concentrating <clears throat> on math sums when you're afraid that your stepfather's going to rape you that night, right? It's going to be Absolutely. fucking difficult, right? Um, so anything, so obviously this relates to COVID because the bear came back. The bear came back another time, right? Like we've all been plunged into this unprecedented and bizarre situation where we were, we were in danger from the virus. We were in danger from just the way the virus upended our whole lives. So forget about your Duolingo. I mean, yeah, I mean, good luck to you, but like, you know, I'm trying to think what the French word is. So, for, you know, we're fucked. Um, the, you know, the, the, the hyper vigilance, I think is the phrase. Uh, the, um, the, yeah, so you can see anything that reduces stress. And I talk about a lot of things that have done this in the book, particularly things that reduce stress at work will boost attention and focus. So you can see, you begin to see when you study attention that it relates to so many aspects of our lives that we don't actually think of as relate as relating to attention. Now I know lots of people are going to look at this book and say it's a self-help book and they're going to be looking for your 12 things that we must try to avoid. And they're going to look for the spotlight and the daylight and the starlight and, and your stadium lights. And, and there's probably stuff that they can, they can glean from this, but it, but it really is to me, it's, it's also a hopeful book, just kind of restoring my faith in humanity because we do have these incredible brains and we do have this extraordinary ability to pay attention to things. And the, people talk about the attention economy, but they're paying the least possible amount of attention to their own lives. That's a really good way of putting it. And you know, you could, People could read Stolen Focus as a self-help book and that would be a perfectly reasonable way to read it and that you can read it purely for personal advice for yourself and your kids. But the reason I don't think of it primarily as a self-help book <clears throat> is because that, like we were saying, that part of it is so important. But on its own, it won't. It will get you a long way. It will enrich your life. It will make you better if you tr try all these forms of individual defense for yourself and your children. But the truth is, you know... If you're being invaded and attacked, my friend Tristan Harris, who was also at the heart of Google, has become one of the most outspoken dissidents, said, look, you can try having self-control, but every time you do it, there's 10,000 really fucking clever, he wouldn't, doesn't swear as much, I'd even say fucking, there are 10,000 really clever engineers at the other side of the screen. They are fucking engineers. <laughs> they are fucking engineers. I would go as far as say they are they motherfucking really are. engineers. Yeah. Uh, at the other side of the screen, trying to undermine your self-control, right? So, absolutely you should defend yourself and i talk about lots of ways you can do that and not just on the tech issue but we've got to stop those engineers from doing that to us right uh, and we absolutely can do that we, we've taken on much bigger forces in history that have yeah. screwed with us right we can deal with these absolutely. issues no absolutely it's it's hopeful which is which is terrific i, I mean, am genuinely hopeful because yeah. before when i thought i was just saying wrong with me and oh some fucker invented the smartphone there's no hope in that we're not going to we're not going to disinvent the smartphone and you know, if you just think there's a problem with you, it's very hopeful when you realise, no, this is being done to everyone, right? It's being done by big forces. When you, There's a great pleasure in understanding what's actually going on. At some level, we know all these books saying, got this huge problem paying a focus, paying attention, but just do this meditation app for three minutes a day. You're going to be fine. We know we've been sold a load of shit on this, which is not to disrespect meditation apps, which I'm in favour of. Uh, oh, and, and what I loved is you said it's okay to also just get lost in your own thoughts and mm. daydream a little bit. That kind of distraction is very good. Yeah, mind-wandering. Right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. mind-wandering is what happens. Sorry, I you... interrupted you, but it no, just no, no, occurred yeah. to me. My no, no, mind was, was wandering. It was, <laughs> oh, the irony. Oh. The, uh, it, yeah, it really helped me. The, actually, one of the most important forms of thinking is what happens when your mind just wanders when you don't have any immediate focus for it, right? So we've really lost mind wandering. If you watch people in a supermarket queue, everyone's looking at their phone, right? No one's mind wandering. Uh, with this overstimulation, but actually it's when your mind is wandering without anything obvious to think about that you have your best ideas, that you become creative, that you process what's happened in the past and you anticipate the future. This was a big revelation for me because I used to sort of fucking feed my mind like a foie gras goose you know it's been force fed right and actually now i give myself at least an hour where i go walking without anything without listening to podcasts or anything often that is the most fertile hour of my day but my wandering has been hugely crowded out by everything that's you know by the changes well, it just doesn't it's not a priority because yeah. it doesn't earn you money yeah and it's not you're not learning facts but even if your only concern was learning money and obviously i don't think that should be your only concern in life but even if it was actually there's lots of evidence Many most scientists have their best breakthroughs when they're mind wandering, right? We've all had that experience where you 
sitting and plugging away at something and you don't know what to do well, and then you just let your mind relax and it comes to you it was what newton with the apple yeah yeah who archimedes with yeah. the screw exactly. uh, no it was the crown in the in the in the water exactly let your mind wander and you figure out things it it really is it's a it's a tremendous work and Johan, oh. it's such a great pleasure to spend time with you what a pleasure hooray yeah I, I do hope that we'll see more of you and that we'll hear more of you and read more of you but um what's on the agenda i mean are you are you traveling the world doing this now publicizing this book or are you busy with the next i've been in uh las vegas for a lot of the pandemic because i'm writing a book about excuse me i'm not meant to talk about it too much but a series of terrible crimes that have been happening in vegas for the last 10 years i've been researching it for a long time 10 years now um so that will be my next book yeah spectacular yeah so it's a bit of it was a weird place to spend a pandemic because you're surrounded by people whose response to a massive global contagious virus was to go Let's go to Vegas. Yeah. So you're sort of like amazing and deranged people. Uh, you know, the, yeah. And so South Africa's deranged. I mean, are you having fun here or are you just working? Well, I had a really weird experience in South Africa. I, the longest time I've ever spent here was 10 years ago when I spent a lot of time with, uh, I haven't written about this yet, so I shouldn't talk about it too much, but um, a, a religious cult in, in uh, KwaZulu-Natal. Oh, I interviewed the two oh, women who escaped from there. Oh, really? From Moses Hlongwe's cult? Very, very interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. And, and it's it's still going. Interesting. It's still going. Interesting. I spent a lot of time with them, and it was fascinating because he's um, for people who don't know. Confusingly, he's called Moses. He claims to be Jesus. They live in the ark, and um, it was fascinating the time I spent with them. Uh, he's. I thought he would be a crazy fraud, and he's absolutely not a fraud. He's a sincere lunatic. So he's a true believer. Yeah, I absolutely believe that. Yeah, yeah. I interviewed his his daughter who who left and. Um, she said a sentence that's really stayed with me. I should laugh. It's not funny. Go on. Uh, she said, because um, she was really disheartened by the whole experience. She said, it's very sad when you discover your father is not the Messiah. She said to me, oh. I was like, join the club. <laughs> I wonder how many uh, mothers are upset when they find out their sons aren't the Messiah. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, I hope so I'll have you, a happier you, experience. You, you don't have any time to have fun because it sounds like... That was fun in a kind of weird... Paying attention to horrible way. killings in Vegas and having to... Uh, watch with a with microscopic oh you see i like dark messiahs oh i find dark crazy violent okay, things right. fun that's well, i mean fun is not quite the right word but hopefully you know fit some fun in as well exactly hooray very special i Lovely really enjoyed to see this oh, and i meant so to much. say my publishers will tase me if i don't um anyone yes. who wants to know where to get the audiobook the ebook or the physical book you can get it from any bookshop basically and you've put a whole bunch of uh interview clips yes. on the internet too yes you can listen for free to loads of interviews with loads of people we talked about if you go to stolenfocusbook.com and i meant to say you can get mm. it at any good bookshop but the truth is you could get it at shit Even bookshops at bad ones, yeah. exactly we don't have like a test we're like <laughs> sorry mate i don't think there's such a thing as a shit bookshop that's true that's true. and they're they're few and far between these days so we must appreciate right. them when we there is no shit them. bookshop exactly yeah. I found a, a horrible little bookshop full of very, very old, very dusty books, and it was one of my favourite places. Of course, the, uh, the old that's ones a place you can focus. Amazing. All right. Well, thank you. I really. It sounds like a kind of an ironic compliment, but I really appreciate how much attention you've paid to the the book and the subject. So I really enjoyed this. Thank you so if much. I, if I didn't pay attention to this book and then I tried to interview you, it would be the ultimate failure. Someone came up to me in the street <laughs> and said, uh, "I saw you being interviewed." Uh, I'm really interested in your book, but I can't pay attention enough to read a book. Could you just give me the headlines? I was like, no, fucking read the book. Sure, here's the pricey. Exactly. Fuck off. No. I love it. So, Thank you so much. Great. Cheers. Thanks so much. Terrific. Cliffcentral.com.